The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this President's Day edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. Coming up this hour, we'll look at what's ahead for the economy and the Federal Reserve with PIMCO Chief U.S. Economist Tiffany Wilding. Plus, we'll turn the focus to retail. Both Walmart and Home Depot report their earnings tomorrow. We'll preview with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Jennifer Bartashes. But first, we want to start with the stock market. 2023 has gotten off to a pretty good start if you're a bull. So is the worst behind us for equities? Let's bring in Lori Calvacina for some analysis, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. It has been uh, quite the rally, and it seems like stocks are holding on to it in the month of February. How do you see equities position, Lori, as we move through the rest of this quarter? Well, thanks for having me. And look, I think that, you know, we're sort of in an interesting spot. I've got a 4,100 target for year end, and I still very much like that number. I think of it as a December 31st number, but at times earlier this year, we've traded above that. Um, And so I find myself feeling quite neutral. I do think that the bearish case for equities has been overstated. Um, You know, I've been accused of being a bull. Um, You know, again, I feel more neutral, but I do have certain models that tell us we could hit 4,500 by the end of the year. So perhaps I guess that, that puts me in the bullish camp. Um, but I, I will say this. I think that we are still in a period of messy normalization post the COVID crisis, very similar to 2010-2011, very similar to 2002-2003. And so I do think things are going to continue to be choppy this year. And you know, I think October was probably the low um, for kind of this 2023 period of economic challenge, recession, weakness, whatever we end up calling it. Um, and I do think that equities perhaps do need to sort of exhale, right, and are maybe a little bit overdue for a breather in the short term. Um, so I think, you know, things are going to continue to be choppy for a while, but that doesn't mean I'm feeling terrible about things. Well, let's break down a little bit of your view here. You said that the bear case may be overstated. Talk a little bit more about that. Why do you think that is? So, you know, I think there's been this view, right, that earnings forecasts still have to come down. We're in the middle of doing that right now. Um, and that, that's got to pummel stocks. And, you know, I think even we were worried about the onset of more challenging economic conditions, um, kind of taking some of the wind out of sales of stocks. But I will tell you, Nathan, you know, as I think back to kind of my December and early January meetings, um, I found that, you know, every strategist was sort of making the same kind of call. And if you look back at the December weakness, I think a lot of that was getting filtered into stock prices already. So maybe that weakness that we deserve to see, um, I think, just simply got pulled forward. So we have gotten through the bulk of this current earnings season. How do you view what companies have told us so far? And how does that position us as we head through the uh, better part of the first half of this year? So I think it's been very muddled messaging. If you read through the earnings call transcripts, which my team and I are are trying our best to read as many as we can. Um, And what we have found is that, you know, there's some good and there's some bad from a macro perspective. I think that one of the things we noticed, and and one of the sectors I'm reading is tech, 
um, is that, you know, we have started to see the onset of slowing start to show up in a lot of the company commentary, and that perhaps is most no- more noteworthy in the tech sector than other areas. At the same time, a lot of the consumer companies are still talking about resiliency. So, you know, there's good news in that whatever this is, is starting. There's also, you know, kind of good news in that um, some of that resiliency on the consumer side of the economy is still being seen by the corporates, which should limit some of the economic carnage that we have to endure this year. I've also been heartened to see that when companies are talking about guidance, that a lot of them are referring to a mild or short recession. So even if the numbers may still feel a little bit too high, I do think a lot of companies are baking in that softer economic scenario into their thinking. Um, they're just telling us that, you know, they think that they can get through it pretty well. Um, and I've also been intrigued to see that a lot of companies, when they're talking about the forward look, are talking about recovery, whether it's later this year on certain metrics or whether it's 2024 on earnings. And I think that's very important because I think that markets have just been pricing everything in very, very early. I think the economic uh, challenges of 2023 got priced in back in 2022. Um, and so I think investors themselves are ready to start looking ahead to 2024 and recovery. And the companies are giving the clients an excuse to do that. Speaking with Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Of course, it's a long way before we get to 2024, Lori. So in the meantime, given what you're telling me, are you sticking with value as a strategy as opposed to growth, at least in the medium term? So we've got our our feet in in both pools, so to speak. Um, You know, I do think that growth is appealing in the context of After we get through this period of economic challenge, I think there's sluggish growth economically waiting us on the other side. I think that's the price we pay for a short, shallow recession is not having much in the way of exciting GDP growth for a while. And traditionally, that's an environment in which you want to be in growth stocks. So we like areas like technology. We think it's sort of the best of the bunch if you're kind of looking at the growth sectors. I think you've, you've, evaluations never look great there, but you've got high quality. A lot of the industries and, you know, sort of within that space look like they're pretty washed out in terms of earning sentiment and are starting to recover. Um, so we want to keep some exposure there. Um, I do think on the value side, though, um, you do want to have some exposure there as well, because one of the things that we see about, you know, big kind of challenging periods, whether it's the financial crisis, the tech bubble, these are all things that usher in big changes in leadership. And I think kind of this pandemic era should be thought of in that regard as well. So that would suggest moving away from growth and back to value. Um, I think that on the value side, we continue to see the best valuations in financials and energy. I do think that they have a short-term problem in that they were resilient on earnings expectations last year, so they've got to take their lumps right now in terms of getting some earnings downgrades in. But I think the good news is the valuations are pretty appealing. We think energy is a more investable sector, and financials is an area that typically does well once markets are convinced a recession low has been put in place, so it's a good rebound area to be in. Um, so I think you want to maintain exposure to both buckets, but really be selective within each of those. Yeah, it's interesting to think as well about financials potentially uh, doing well in this kind of Federal Reserve central bank policy environment where we're seeing rates moving higher, the potential for that as well. It's interesting as well to think about tech potentially outperforming given that tighter policy environment. How much could the Fed have an impact on where stocks go from here? I think that we need to get to the pause. Um, I, you know, I've become less convinced that we need the actual cuts, but I think if you look at how sectors perform to start the year, they're really starting to bake in that idea of a Fed pause. 
Um, if historically, and we did a study where we look at what sectors tend to do well after your final Fed hikes going back to the mid-90s. And it was interesting because you do tend to see the growth sectors like technology, like communication services, like consumer discretionary do quite well. So the fact that those three sectors had such a nice start to the year in January was really telling us markets were starting to try to price in that pause. Financials is another area for, you know that interestingly does well after the final hikes, not as well as the growth sectors, um, but does tend to do pretty well afterwards. Um, I think that, you know, the, the market needs to know and needs to remain convinced that we're closer to the end than the beginning. I think that, you know, where the Fed ends up at the end of the year is going to have a big determinant on the PE multiple um, that we pay for this market. And, you know, when I, I sort of talk about, you know, potential upside to 4,500, that's baking in kind of a 22 plus trailing PE multiple on my earnings number. And I'll spare you all the details, but that's based on a model that has a couple Fed cuts uh, baked into the end of the year. I think Fed around 475, uh, 10-year Treasury yield at 3.4. If I take those assumptions up a little bit and raise those interest rate levels, I come out to something that's a little closer to my target of 4,100, which implies something more like a 20 times PE multiple. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, the short answer here is those interest rate levels, what happens with inflation is going to dictate the PE multiple, but a higher for longer Fed may not be as disastrous uh, for the PE multiple as a lot of the bears on the street have been trying to imply. Since it is President's Day, Lori, I want to ask you about something I know you've been keeping your eye on that the uh, president, President Biden, is going to be embroiled in over the next few months, and that's the debt ceiling debate. Is this something investors should be concerned about at this point, a potential default in the U.S. in the next couple of months? You know, it's, it, you hear varying opinions on this. And, you know, for my, for my state of mind, you know, I, I think that the risks are starting to emerge more in the back half of the year. And I think that markets never like uncertainty um, and particularly don't like uncertainty with some of these thorny political issues. And I think one of the impacts of the midterms and having that, you know, sort of very precarious balance of power for Republicans in the House um, you know, and, and the split Congress, I, I think the implications for the debt ceiling negotiations, you know, are probably one of the most meaningful things we have coming out of that in the short term. I just think it's going to be very difficult, um, you know, based on that, that that balance of power for a deal to get struck. And so if we assume that, you know, everyone down in D.C. has uh, the economy's best interest at heart and we'll find a way to get it done, you know, I, I hope that's true, but it feels like it's going to be more difficult to get to that point than it has in the past. And if we look at markets and we're sort of, you know, kind of done a year's worth, um, you know, of what I think is a deserved move in the first month plus of the year, month and a half of the year, um, you know, sentiment is rebounding very, very quickly. We could get to a point by mid-year when those negotiations are really coming into the forefront where it doesn't take a lot to knock the market down. So, I, you know, I am worried about it. It is something we're keeping an eye on. We're not seeing a ton of chatter of it about it from companies yet, um, but we expect to see it pick up. Yeah, I would imagine so, since the uh, time for it to run out potentially could be early this summer. Thanks for this, as always, Lori. Great speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome back to this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. The U.S. stock market is closed on this President's Day holiday. We now want to turn our focus to the economy. Inflation and interest rates continue to be top of mind for investors in 2023. So what's in store for the rest of this year? Let's bring in Tiffany Wilding for some insights, the chief U.S. economist at PIMCO. Tiffany, it's great to speak with you on this holiday. And I guess it's great to keep seeing signs of resilience in this economy. What does that tell you about the path ahead for the Fed? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me, Nathan. It's great to be on the show. Um, I think it's a little bit of good news, um, but also a little bit of bad news in the sense that, yes, the U.S. economy has been much more resilient you know, than we and, and many forecasters were expecting. Um, but, but nevertheless, as a result of that, um, you know, inflationary pressures could remain high for longer than expected, and that ultimately requires the Federal Reserve to, to raise rates more. Um, and so that um, you obviously will will continue to put downward pressure on economic activity to get inflation down. You know, so even though the the economy is a little bit more resilient now, um, you know, that doesn't really change the outlook because that just means the Fed has to do a little bit more work. That sounds a lot like the message we keep hearing from a parade of Fed speakers, including uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. In fact, earlier this month, he was talking about just that with David Rubenstein at the Economic Club of Washington. Let's uh, play a little bit of what he had to say. We have a significant road ahead to get inflation down to 2%. And, and I, I think there's been an expectation that it'll that it'll go away quickly uh, and painlessly, and I, I don't think that's at all guaranteed. That's not the base case. The base case is it will t- for me is that it will take some time, and w- we'll have to do more rate increases, and then we'll have to look around and see whether we've done enough. It's a pretty broad base case, isn't it, uh, Tiffany? How much time do you think is some time for this Fed to get inflation back to target? Well, I mean, that's clearly the, um, the the key question here, as Powell noted. Um, you know, ultimately, our forecast for, for core CPI inflation, for example, is that it will get down to 3% by the end of, of this year. You know, so that's down from 6 Um, Obviously, that is not in line with the Fed's target. Uh, we have said, you know, from a headline inflation perspective, that getting from 8 to 4 will be relatively easy because there is still some pandemic-related effects that are impacting uh, the year-over-year rate of headline inflation, but getting from four to two, that'll take a little bit more time. Um, You know, and again, as you suggested, exactly how much time is there's a lot of uncertainty around that. And I would say incrementally, we've actually recently gotten some not so great news on that. Um, You know, this is maybe a little bit wonky, but the statistical agencies, the CPI, the BLS that releases the CPI, recently, um, you know, revised their uh, their measure. And it suggests that actually some of the disinflation that we thought we were seeing at year end actually didn't happen. It was revised away. Um, and so that suggests that maybe inflation could come down even a little bit more slowly than many were expecting. So that's obviously not very good news. Is it making it more difficult then to see the impact that the tightening that we've gotten from this Federal Reserve over the last few months of like 400 basis points in rate increases, whether that's actually having an effect on the inflationary pressures that are in this economy? 
Yeah, so I think that the um, the reaction to the pandemic, as well from the fiscal authority, you know, from the governments, uh, as well as um, the supply chain bottlenecks, actually are creating you know somewhat different relationships with how monetary policy affects the economy these days. In other words, it's actually making monetary policy impact the economy with a little bit longer of a lag potentially than what we're normally used to, and that's because. You know the po- you know the pandemic related uh, government spending increased consumer uh, you know increased consumer savings and they have a buffer and then the supply chain bottlenecks resulted in major backlogs for for various companies which they're still working through so as a result of these buffers we are still having very resilient and very strong activity. Um, you know, but of course, as we work through them, you know, the story will be a bit different, you know, and I think that's why we're seeing some greater lag in the monetary policy transmission mechanism, uh, because we still have those buffers. So does that raise the possibility then that we could get an overshoot from the Federal Reserve if they haven't given themselves the time to see whether the lag is allowing the policy that's already been put out to have that effect? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And and I think that the um, obviously the Federal Reserve and, and with monetary policy, they have to balance the various risks uh, that are out there. You know, not the, the there's an obvious one of the fact they maybe are doing too much um, and, and then they will send the economy sort of needlessly uh, into a weaker state. Um, but obviously, the other risk that they're trying to balance is, is that, you know, as we discussed, inflation may prove to be a bit stickier. Uh, than expected, it may need more work from them in order to bring it down. So I think, you know, currently their balancing act uh, has basically led them to slow down the pace of rate hikes. For example, we're now at a more, you know, at least kind of more historically somewhat more normal rate of 25 basis point rate hikes per meeting. Um, and the Federal Reserve has has said, you know, we're going to continue at that pace basically until we see more progress on inflation. You know, so I think that's the kind of balance that they've reached right now. So where do you think the Fed needs to get when it comes to restrictive territory? Have they gotten there at this point? Do they have further to go? What's your view? Yeah, well, well, so, um, you know, the, the a Taylor rule would would suggest that they need to get the Fed funds rate above wherever they think the underlying trend in inflation is. So I, I mentioned before, there's still pandemic related effects that will go away that are impacting inflation. So really the tricky thing right now is to try to figure out, excluding those effects, where is the underlying trend in inflation? And you know, to us, it kind of looks like it's between three and a half and four. You know, So they need to, at a minimum, get the Fed funds rate above that level. Um, and their recent uh, projections from the SEP in December suggested they would get up to around 5%, a little bit above that. Uh, so that's obviously above that kind of, you know, three to four, three and a half to four percent trend that we mentioned. You know, but more recently, uh, the the uh, communications that we've gotten from from them maybe suggest that they maybe even will go a little bit above that. So maybe closer to three and a half, uh, excuse me, five and a half percent. But but ultimately, you know, where they ultimately end up, the terminal rate of this hiking cycle, you know, obviously is very uncertain. They're going to be probing for that, you know, trying to understand how much is too much. Um, you know, and, and ultimately they will will sort of continue to assess the data to try to figure that out um, and continue to balance those risks that I mentioned before. You also mentioned before that you're projecting that inflation is going to get down to 3% by the end of this year. Obviously, that's just a little bit higher than the Fed's target of 2 Does a 2% inflation target still make sense? Is it realistic? 
Yeah, I think that's a really great question. You know, and obviously right now when inflation is elevated, you know, Chair Powell has to be very resolute uh, in his communication to, you know, on, on bringing inflation down. So I think recently he's suggested that they're not revisiting the 2% inflation target. Um, you know, that's completely off the table right now. Nevertheless, though, you know, when inflation has come down, um, you know, to 3%, you know, that I think, you know, is reason for a little bit of victory, uh, you know, a bit of a victory lap from Federal Reserve officials. Um, and 3%, you know, even though they say their inflation target is at 2, 3% might be, you know, okay, at least for, for a time. Um, you know, now there's really no magic around that 2% level. Um, that 2% level, you know, kind of came from, uh, you know, the Central Bank of New Zealand, uh, you know, several, several decades ago, and it sounded like a level that was was pretty good, um, you know, but there's no uh, real magic around that level. It could be 3%, it could be 1%, you know, and so I think that, you know, given that, you know, there probably will be some room once inflation comes down, it's getting close to target, there will be a little bit of wiggle room there that the Federal Reserve will say, okay, maybe it's not exactly at target yet, but that's okay. Thanks for this, Tiffany. Great having you on with us. Thanks for having me. That's PIMCO Chief U.S. Economist Tiffany Wilding. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome back to this special President's Day edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. Let's turn our focus now to earnings because we're going to hear from a couple giants in the retail sector tomorrow. Walmart and Home Depot report their latest quarterly results before the opening bell of the holiday shortened trading week. For more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Jennifer Bartashis. Great to have you on with us, Jen. Thanks for being here. So for Walmart, this is going to be our first look at the holiday quarter for them, right? What's the expectation? That's correct, Nathan. Um, when we're looking at Walmart, what we're really um, expecting to see is that they had a very solid holiday quarter um, in terms of the top line. So we're expecting same-store sales to be up. We expect top-line growth to be up. Um, we do think that traffic into stores maybe have maybe contracted just a little bit. Um, but the real issue with Walmart for this quarter is margins. Um, they really struggled last uh, during the course of the entire year on right-sizing their inventory. Um, and we're really looking at what kind of signals they are sending about the markdowns and the impact that'll have on margins um, after the holiday season. Yeah, it's something we've been hearing a lot about from many of these retailers, the glut of inventory and the idea that they're being forced to uh, put in deep discounts to unload all this extra stuff they've got. Is that something that could potentially eat into the margins that we get from Walmart? We think that there is a possibility of that. And early in the year, Walmart had a huge inventory problem. They sort of cleared that out. But because of all the supply chain issues that we saw over the course of the year, they brought inventory in early and they brought in inventory in terms of extra to make sure that they would have enough on hand for holiday. Um, and with the holiday season, it was a good season, but it wasn't a fabulous season, um, which means that they likely didn't sell through all of that inventory that they had. And so that creates the necessity for markdowns. Um, and the, the steeper the markdown to tempt people to, to spend, which is hard in this environment, 
um, is what could drive the margin um, margin issues that we're expecting. Yeah, something else we've been hearing from a lot of these companies going into this earnings season is the need to cut costs uh, against the tough economic headwinds that we've been uh, seeing signs of. Is that something you're expecting to get from Walmart as well in terms of uh, perhaps having to get rid of some of the uh, overhead for the company? Well, generally, Walmart is, is pretty efficient at, main, at, at contain, and containing costs and are, are pretty systematic at being a low-cost operator. Um, but, we, you know, there are certainly going to be opportunities to, to sort of, you know, be strategic in, in ways to cut costs. And whether that is in closing a couple of stores or whether that's in using automation uh, to help uh, improve efficiency, um, those are the types of, of actions that we would expect. Um, but we're not expecting any huge announcements in terms of layoffs. You know, that that has already sort of happened uh, during the course of the year earlier. Yeah. What about the uh, possibility of uh, continued wage pressures from Walmart? I think I recalled them making some kind of announcement that they were at least uh, raising some of the minimum wage for many of the workers as well. Is that something that could play into the results? Well, it, it, it could. Um, we're at a point now, though, where all of the retailers are sort of systematically, gradually raising um, wages kind of in competition with each other in that bid for talent. Um, and so I don't expect that we'll see a, a big wave of increases. Um, it's sort of become more of a normal course of business that that wage pressure is going to remain persistent over the next few quarters for sure. And how about inflation overall potentially playing into Walmart's nominal results? Obviously, we're continuing to see signs that uh, price pressures are elevated throughout the economy. Does that factor in at all? It does, um, and because of the of you know Walmart's merchandise mix and the the customer base that they have, you know you know they are certainly positioned to do well in a higher inflation environment because people are seeking to stretch their budgets as far as they can. But what's happening is that Walmart is seeing a mix shift in what they're selling, and they're selling way more groceries than they used to sell, and a lot less general merchandise than they used to sell. Um, And that has a big impact on the actual um, profitability of the business um, because the margins on general merchandise are much, much higher than they are on grocery. So as long as we have inflationary pressure that's sort of affecting the consumer, um, as well as affecting Walmart's cost of goods, um, we'll continue to see that play out in a in a very interesting dynamic. Although I'd imagine that that's something that uh, could potentially provide something of a tailwind for Walmart, couldn't it? That just the fact that they have such a diversified portfolio of products that they offer to customers that that could uh, you know put them in a, a better foundation perhaps than some of the competition. That definitely does play in their favor, and we often see in, in times where consumers are under pressure that they consolidate trips, they prefer stores where they can shop across multiple categories. Um, so for Walmart, the only thing is making sure that they have the right items uh, for customers um, and that they, there's demand for them and that they sell through them. I'm curious as well to get your view on how Walmart stacks up against some of its major competitors. I'm thinking particularly of Amazon in the e-commerce space and Costco in the uh, sort of uh, wholesale retail space with uh, Sam's Club as part of Walmart or part of Walmart's mix. 
Yeah, Sam's Club has actually been a real bright spot for Walmart. Um, they've had incredibly strong sales growth. Um, their membership base is growing. Um, if you remember, a couple of years ago, they closed a lot of Sam's Clubs that were sort of underperforming or were in poor locations. And since then, they've really adjusted the business, and it has got a lot of momentum behind it. Um, they are competing well against Costco. Um, the customer base is still a little bit different between Sam's Club and, and, and Costco, so there seems to be enough room for both players. Um, but it, Sam's Club does continue to be a, a real bright spot for Walmart. Um, when it comes to Amazon, um, it's been interesting to watch, um, especially in recent weeks, how Amazon is has sort of backed away from their grocery business. Um, you know That, I think, in part is attributable to how much of a powerhouse Walmart is in grocery. Um, but on the e-commerce side, um, there's still a large gap, obviously, between the two companies. Um, you know, Walmart continues to expand its online offering by its marketplace and how many items it has and how many different sellers it has. Um, it's it's growing its businesses in terms of fulfillment services. So it, it's doing the right things, um, but it's still at a much, much smaller size than Amazon overall. Speaking with Jennifer Bartasha, senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Of course, the other major retailer we're looking to hear from tomorrow is in a different category than Walmart in the uh, home improvement sector. That's Home Depot. What's the team at Bloomberg Intelligence expecting there? Yeah, when 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 we look at Home Depot, um, it, it's an interesting story because you know home you know home was such a hot uh, segment for such a long time. Um, we are expecting same store sales for Home Depot to moderate this quarter, um, and and really that's because uh, last quarter they sort of outperformed, but the company didn't change its full year guidance, and so that really implies that the company was expecting a slowdown in the fourth quarter. Um, and so we, we do think that that's going to that's going to play out. Out. Now, we do think that, that Home Depot in particular um, will be able to support top-line growth just because of the relative strength of their professional customers, um, and that's they have a much higher density of professionals that use Home Depot than, say, some of their competitors like Lowe's. Um, but it is possible that one first quarter is going to be sort of the peak, uh, or um, the fourth quarter is going to be kind of a peak, and it's going to continue to moderate from there. Well, it is um, interesting that we uh, have seen so much uh, difficulty difficulty of late in the uh, housing market uh, mm-hmm. in terms of economic data. Could that potentially be reflected in what we get from Home Depot tomorrow? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've seen that uh, home improvement spending has sort of decoupled um, from existing home sales. Um, and so the challenges that we're seeing in the housing market are likely to weigh on that repair and remodeling spending that is a big component of what Home Depot is all about. Um, and the longer the housing market is challenged, um, the more difficult things are going to get for Home Depot long term. How do you look at Walmart and Home Depot as proxies for the overall economy? What could the earnings tell us in that context? Well, I think you know when you look at them in, uh, together, it gives you a really good sense of where the average consumer is today. Um, you know, Walmart arguably has more exposure to the widest swath of the typical American household than any other retailer. Um, so it really is a good indication of of where where people's heads are and where their pocketbooks are today. Um, with Home Depot, um, it really starts to give you a sense of you know, where that spending 
that tends to be more a little more discretionary in terms of home is happening for the consumer, um, but we'll also get a sense of how that professional, um, the professional side of the business is holding up and what that may mean for the housing market. And we'll be on the lookout for those earnings before the opening bell tomorrow from Walmart and Home Depot. Thanks for this, Jen. Great having you on with us. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Jennifer Bartashes. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Welcome back to this special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. I'm Nathan Hager. The U.S. stock market is closed for the President's Day holiday, and this week will mark a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a moment that set off the most devastating ground war for Europe since World War II. For more, we're joined by Rosalind Matheson, Bloomberg's senior executive editor for government. Roz, thanks for being with us as we get closer to that milestone. Where do things stand now as we get closer to year two? Well, as we go into the year two, Mark, the reality is that Russia is still pretty bogged down on the ground in a war that no doubt Vladimir Putin envisaged would last perhaps even just days. He saw his troops going into Kiev, overtaking the capital, perhaps the president, Vladimir Zelensky, fleeing the country and that he would have an easy result. And obviously it's been anything but that over the past year. We've seen Russia's troops push back from the north, away from the capital, focusing now on the east and the southeastern part of Ukraine. But really, it's been a grinding war the last few months. And as the casualties mount on both sides and as they burn through a lot of ammunition and and artillery as well. So the question really is, can Russia make proper progress on the ground? Can Ukraine in turn push Russia further back and regain territory? Or are we really facing many, many months yet of this kind of like continued grind on the ground in the east? It is an interesting question to ponder as we've been hearing these warnings over the last several weeks that Russia's planning this new spring offensive. And it really does see bras like the Kremlin has ramped up its attacks, particularly on infrastructure in just the last couple of weeks. Well, that's right. They continue to fire barrages of rockets attacking Ukrainian energy infrastructure. There's an argument perhaps that their offensive has already begun, that it won't be that big bang moment um, when something dramatic happens, but rather it'll just be a continued escalation over time of activity by Russia on the ground. The question is, in all of that, will they be able to do very much before Ukraine gets the weapons that we know are coming its way? And it raises the question as well, as we wait for those weapons to make their way to Ukraine, the bolstering with the tanks and that, whether we could see even further escalation to this war. Well, that's right. And certainly, and that's probably what Vladimir Putin is seeking to do, is to use that window because he knows come perhaps June or July, Ukraine will be in a much stronger position to push back his troops? Um, And does he use the one-year mark of the war uh, to try and rally not just his troops on the ground, but his people at home, of course, who are probably sort of looking at this war with at least a sense of dismay um, over the past year? How does he keep momentum going there? That's really another big question for him. Are you looking at signs that we could see escalation pointed outside Ukraine toward NATO? with these weapons coming in and with President Zelensky of Ukraine 
calling for fighter jets to be part of the arsenal as well. Well, that's been the interesting thing over the past year because there was a lot of concern initially about sending in offensive weapons because would Russia see that as a particular escalation by NATO? But each time uh, that the West has sent in more advanced weapons, that promised retaliation has not come. So that kind of concern about possible broader Russia retaliation seems to have faded. Also, equally, the, the rhetoric around possibly using nuclear weapons has also dissipated. And the reality is that Russian troops are in no position to really go further than Ukraine at the moment. So really the idea that any of this can come outward really from Ukraine right now seems highly unlikely. Finally, Roz, as we get closer to this second year, are we seeing any signs on either side that we're getting closer to a negotiated resolution between Russia and Ukraine? Certainly not at this point in time. You can see that Ukrainians are very dug in. Uh, President Zelensky has said that he won't negotiate unless all the territory that Russia has taken over the years, including Crimea, which it annexed in 2014, is on the table. Russia's made clear that it won't agree to those sorts of terms. Um, And so there's sort of nowhere at all at the moment to create an atmosphere for talks to occur, negotiations to happen, that we're nowhere near that at this point. Thanks, Roz. Appreciate you coming on with us. That's Rosalind Matheson, Senior Executive Editor for Government at Bloomberg News. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.